yesterday we began by trying to get back to the primary questions that prompt the kind of inquiry we are pursuing on a retreat like this. What is it about our life that um, raises the sorts of um, puzzles, perplexities that move us to seek a way of resolving them that we don't find, say, through our conventional forms of education or religion, perhaps, and bring us to this kind of inward quest, this other way of paying attention to things. And today I'd like to go back to the beginnings of the Buddha's own um, way of dealing with this and consider what is meant by this experience of, of awakening or enlightenment. Again, I think we can see the trajectory of Siddhartha Gautama's own life as mirroring in many ways uh, something rather universal. In the legend that I, I mentioned yesterday afternoon, you have uh, this young man who lives in this very privileged situation, one day realizing that he's somehow uh, cut off from life, in a way. And he then goes outside of his enclosed, privileged um, home and encounters sickness, aging, and death. Now, it's unrealistic to assume that he had literally never encountered these things before. But what, these, um, what this story points to is that at a certain point in his life, and perhaps at a certain point in our own lives too, the, um, the, the weight and the, uh, the sheer extraordinariness of having been born only to one day be ejected from this very place into which we have been born, to suffer sickness, to suffer aging, and to disappear, that this is very much the great question that existence poses to us. Now, for Siddhartha Gautama, he um, then chooses to leave his home in a way uh, something we also may have done, and by home we don't necessarily here have to mean, you know, the, literally the house in which we grew up, but rather to leave home, I think, is a metaphor for going beyond or taking the the risk to go beyond, to leave behind all that is somehow familiar and comforting to us. And this, I think, is a step that is almost inevitable once certain questions of our existence reach 
a particular pitch, when they become so um, uh, central to our concerns that we can no longer ignore them. And this entails a leaving behind of something, leaving behind the, the comforts, the complacency perhaps of received tradition, of our upbringing, of our cultural conditioning, and embarking into what, in a way, has to be an unknown. We have to take a risk to step into uh, a form of practice or a way of life in which we, we can no longer fall back upon the securities um, of family, of home, of accepted belief, of convention, that have, up until that point, given us a certain sense of, of, of being at home in the world. At some level, we no longer feel at home in the world anymore. There's a sense of... Um, going out into the wilderness, which is a metaphor we'd find in Christianity. In Buddhism, um, there's a beautiful phrase the Buddha uses on, on a number of occasions. He says, the, the home life is filled with dust. The homeless life is wide and open. And if you think about it, any situation in which you somehow feel yourself at home, is a place in which, over time, gradually, uh, a kind of an accumulation of habit, an accumulation of familiarity, begins to dull and dust the place, if you wish. Whereas when we're on the open road, when we leave that situation behind, where there's nothing somehow static and fixed that we hold in place so much anymore then the world is open in all directions. A home, whether it be a physical home or whether it be a metaphorical home, like a set of beliefs, for example, necessarily will obscure our capacity to see around us, to see above us. We, 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 we wall ourselves in. We build uh, and erect or accept certain limitations. And that, although it might give us security, also somehow closes us off to other possibilities. Yet once those things are, are shared and discarded, the world is open wide. We can see in front, we can see to either side, we can see behind. All of that familiarity is lost. Now that can be rather unsettling, Certainly. But at the same time, there's a wonderful sense of freedom that we're not constrained as we were up until that point. We don't have the same securities either. This is the price we pay. And so even something like Buddhism or any religion can, after a period of time, become another kind of home. It can give us a certain security, but often at the cost of somehow occluding and blocking our freedom to see things openly. We then become immured, which literally means closed within walls, within a certain set of views. 
So the Buddha's example, I think, is something to which we can always return, even if we accept, for example, Buddhism. And as we were seeing yesterday, there are certain elements of Buddhism that I think are quite um, enclosing. They offer or suggest a worldview that we may not sit particularly well with any longer in the light of what we currently understand through the sciences and so on. And so yet again, we find a need perhaps to move out of those consolations and comforts into another set of unknowns. So Siddhartha Gautama leaves his home. He, un he practices all the different meditations and ascetic disciplines that are available to him at his time. He um, lives in communities of people who are doing much the same kind of thing as himself. In a way, perhaps, somewhat similar to um, what we would do in, say, traveling to India or coming here on retreat um, or, or, or reading and studying um, you know, different texts and, uh, and so forth from di different traditions. But at a certain point, this process too became unfulfilling. This also led him into another sense of somehow being unresolved. And it's at that point that he decides that he really just has to sit still and he chooses to sit beneath this particular tree and resolves at that time to get to the root of what it is that most perplexes and confuses him. And there I think we come quite vividly to the idea of perplexity. The Buddha's driven now um, into a kind of um, impasse where nothing, whether his material or his social or his political situation, his spiritual and religious experiments have, re have led him to um, a kind of brick wall. And that, I think, is very much a state of deep existential crisis. He really does not know what's going on. And yet he is animated by a very deep uh, confusion, which is also a kind of inquiry and openness into what on earth this is all about. And it's here we then encounter, after a number of days seated beneath this tree, Again, we don't know the exact details of all this, really. But it, the, 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 the end result is this experience called bodhi, usually translated as enlightenment, which is not um, entirely incorrect. But the word itself in Sanskrit, or Pali, um, does not, in fact, suggest anything to do with light. The, the word is rooted in... The, the verb to wake up. It's an awakening, it's a waking up. And that, of course, is metaphorical. It's not, 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 it's not as though he went beneath the Bodhi tree and he had a long nap, and then one day he woke up from the nap. <laughs> but rather, what he experienced was akin, it was similar to the experience that each of us has every time the alarm goes off in the morning, we wake up. We 
come back to this world we share with others. We come back to this world of the senses. We wake up from either deep sleep or a dream and come into a much fuller, and I think crucially, a world in which we are uh, participating with other beings like ourselves. It's a social world. It's a shared world. It's a world um, that is not just the projection of our own mind, like a dream, but something that is far richer, at the same time more confusing perhaps, and one in which we have to coexist with others. The, there are many accounts of this awakening or enlightenment that we find in the early texts, but I'd like this morning to focus on a passage from the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, which is the 26th discourse in the middle length sayings of the Buddha. And this is a very unusual text in that it is overtly autobiographical. The Buddha is asked to talk about his own history, his own story, how he came to be um, what he has become. And so he tells this account, admittedly rather in outline, it's not a, a, like a contemporary autobiography in which you go into every little detail of your life. But it is unusual in that um, the Buddha is talking about himself in a way that we would recognize as autobiography. I also feel that he concentrates here very much on the key points of his process. He doesn't elaborate it in some of the ways it, it's elaborated in later uh, texts, but it seems to get right to the heart of things. And what I'd like to look at is section 19, in which he describes what it is that he woke up to. In other words, what was the content of this enlightenment or this awakening. We often find um, nowadays that this word enlightenment is banded around rather uncritically. And uh, you may read in a magazine article or in a, the, black, the back of a book that so, 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 such and such a person achieved enlightenment and now is te teaching the world all the wonderful things that he or she has learned. Um, you have discussions as to, very heated discussions sometimes, uh, as to whether a particular teacher, a particular monk, a particular lama, a particular roshi is enlightened or not. As though enlightenment were some kind of discrete property that certain people have and other people don't. Something that you can attain or you can get. And the word is used, I think, very uncritically, and also um, in a way that suggests that enlightenment is something uh, sui generis, something that exists in and of it in its own right. But perhaps the more interesting question, 
which doesn't seem to be asked so often, is enlightened about what? Awakened about what? The same can be said about the notion of freedom, liberation, which is again a, ter a term that is often used, um, but very often without actually asking, but free from what? Liberated from what? All of these terms have meaning within a specific context. They're not free-floating, um, self-referring notions that operate somehow independently of any framework of meaning. The Buddha is very clear about what it is that he woke up to. It's not as though he woke up to something vague like reality or truth, which is really fairly meaningless, but he wakes up to something very specific. So let me read you the text, and then you can see what he says. This is the Buddha speaking. He says, I considered this Dhamma, this, again, a very difficult word to translate, this Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see, and hard to understand peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth, namely dependent origination. And it is hard to see this truth, namely the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of attachments, the destruction of craving, nibbana, nirvana. If I were to teach the Dhamma, others would not understand me, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. Now here we have an account in which he, he quite specifically uh, singles out the, the core... Um, idea, or the core truth, if you wish, of his awakening, and that is dependent arising. Depend, or he says, specific conditionality. is another way you could translate it. Now, he says nothing here about understanding, coming to an insight as to say what it is that makes the universe tick, um, the ultimate nature of reality, um, the absolute, the divine, the transcendent, none of, no such language is used. Uh, and in this sense, perhaps, it's even misleading to think of this as um, somehow a mystical experience, uh, particularly as we would understand a mystical experience in a theistic tradition, which inevitably refers to something about the nature of God, something uh, transcendent, something absolute, something divine, something sacred. There's no suggestion of that here in this passage, but rather dependent origination, conditionality. Now, what does he mean by this? Again, we can find um, a number of passages in which he makes this clear. Perhaps one of the most famous ones um, when he's asked to explain what dependent origination means, he says, when this is, that arises. 
That's all he says. When this is, that arises. So he's talking about something which almost seems to be, perhaps for us, rather self-evident, rather obvious. When this is, that arises. In other words, he's talking very much about the structure of the phenomenal world. He's not concerned with something outside or beyond or something which is unconditioned, but rather his awakening is about the nature of the phenomenal world itself. Another example of his description of dependent origination, which was almost, it seems in the early tradition, a kind of slogan, runs like this. Um, whatever arises is something that ceases. You often find this being said. At the end of the very first discourse to the five ascetics, uh, one of the monks, Kundanya, um, understands what the Buddha has said, and to somehow put that into his own words, he says, whatever arises is something that ceases. When the Buddha later goes to uh, Rajgir, um, it's there that he meets um, uh, two men who subsequently become his principal followers, Sariputta and Moggallana. And when they first ask, um, well, what is it that this man teaches? They're told by Asaji, another of the Buddha's early followers, whatever arises is something that ceases. And on hearing that, Sariputta is immediately enlightened. So he goes back to his community and his friend Moggallana says, well, what does this guy teach? And Sariputta says, whatever arises is something that ceases. Moggallana then becomes awakened. Now, I find this very telling. Um, he's saying, when this is, that arises, whatever arises is something that ceases. Um, this is almost, I think, like we might say the E equals MC squared of Buddhism. It's, it's extremely simple. And yet from that premise, there then arises the whole of, you know, two and a half thousand years of philosophy and thought and practice and culture and literature and art. It all springs from that primary insight. Now, clearly, this insight is not something um, that the Buddha somehow figured out intellectually. Uh, again, at one level, we all know this. We all know that you know, thinking, thinking, things that arise will pass away. We all know that when certain conditions are present, that will give rise to something else. That there is a, a causality built into the structure of the phenomenal world. That there is process continuously. We observe it very beautifully nowadays in the study of biology or the study of history. We see that the whole of life is saturated by one thing giving rise to another, which then gives rise to something else and so forth. We might all, almost say that dependent origination, which is a rather clumsy word in English, could perhaps simply be rendered as life. 
that um, this is simply the basic law of living processes, that whatever arises ceases. When conditions come into being, they will generate something else. And it's at the very heart of the idea of impermanence, which is again something the Buddha reiterates almost ad nauseam. Everything changes. It also is at the heart of the idea that everything is unsatisfactory, that it's suffering. Nothing remains long enough in place for it ever to be able to give us the kind of deep uh, well-being and peace that we yearn for. The phenomenal world cannot satisfy us by our somehow holding on to it or manipulating it or controlling it in any way. It will always turn into something else. It will always change before our eyes into something that has somehow lost its luster or its initial appeal. And it's also the idea that um, is just another way of stating the truth of emptiness, of selflessness, that nothing has any kind of intrinsic essence, whether it be me or you or a, a bird or a thing. When we look deeply into, into any uh, entity, anything, we find that we can never pin it down as saying, well, this is what it really is, that at the core of myself there resides some permanent, unchanging, unaffected uh, cell of me. That me, although it appears to be such a, a solid and such a fixed thing, as soon as we begin to probe it, either philosophically or neurobiologically or in meditation, it kind of dissolves. It becomes unfindable. It becomes fluid, slippery, evasive ambiguous. And that too is because it is arising and passing away, it's coming out of conditions, generating other conditions, it's processual rather than thing-like in any way. So these three characteristics of existence that I mentioned and Martin mentioned yesterday, again, are all implicit in the idea of dependent origination, or, as we might say, of life itself. There's another passage in the early Pali text where the Buddha says, um, the one who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. And the Dhamma, in this sense, means more... It means both what the Buddha teaches is the Dhamma, but also... Um, More importantly, the Dhamma is the internalization of what the Buddha taught. In other words, it's one's own personal um, experience and understanding of those things. That is, in a way, the true Dhamma, not a body of texts or suttas and things like that, but the internalization of those ideas. Whoever sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma, and whoever sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha. In other words, he himself somehow identifies with this 
uh, principles. But again, the quality of his insight or our insight into uh, dependent origination um, is one that uh, clearly is, is a deeply embodied uh, and uh, intuitive insight. It's not just knowing this as a fact. I can read this text, you can read this text, can tell you all about it. It might not make any, have any effect on you at all. It might just sound rather you know, a curious bit of Buddhist history. But somehow, certainly for the Buddha himself and for his, um, his first followers, uh, this uh, teaching had an almost revolutionary impact on their lives. Well, it did have a revolutionary impact on their lives. It turned their lives upside down. It was so shocking for them that it woke them up to see the world in a totally new way. But, and I think it's here that we, we can see, therefore, the, the sense of the final sentence in this passage where he said, if I were to teach the Dharma, others would not understand me. And that would be wearying and troublesome for me. In other words, he recognizes that in the world of his time, and it's possibly just as true today, that although um, it sounds quite straightforward, it actually is an idea that's quite difficult to grapple with and to internalize in the kind of way that he has understood it. It somehow turns everything on its head. And he phrases this very explicitly in a verse that follows immediately after the passage I've read. He said, Those caught up in attachment, wrapped in darkness, will never discern this abstruse dhamma, which goes against the stream, subtle, deep, and difficult to see. Now the key word here is goes against the stream. Pati sota gami. It goes against the stream. I think a, a modern way in which we might uh, say that would be it's counterintuitive. Counterintuitive. In other words, what he's saying is not something that is evident to common sense. That although we know intellectually that everything changes, that things come about in dependence on conditions and so on, we do not intuitively sense either ourselves or others or the world in that way. In fact, our intuitive sense of who we are is completely the opposite to this. Our intuitive sense is that actually I am not dependently arising and impermanent and vanishing and selfless, but rather the opposite. That the things that I'm attached to, whether it be my friends and my relatives, my possessions, my status, all of these things about which we uh, spend so much time and worry, we don't perceive these things as ephemeral 
transient, contingent, but rather the opposite. We are in a kind of grip, a hold, that constantly affirms these things as having a kind of fixed, solid reality, particularly when it comes to our sense of ego, our sense of self. So it's counterintuitive in the sense that although we intellectually might accept everything the Buddha says, intuitively we continue to behave and to live and to think um, in, a, in a completely opposite way. And this is where really meditation practice comes in. Why you can have a degree in Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist studies and perhaps be able to explain the subtleties of dependent origination perfectly well. But if you've not somehow sought to internalize that insight into the actual fabric of your felt experience, it will have little effect. You will be just as neurotic and um, attached to things and greedy and selfish as everybody else. And so one of the reasons that I find it valuable to do these study retreats is precisely so that we don't get sidetracked into speculations and theories and philosophical ideas, which can all be terribly interesting. But we try to take these ideas and internalize them through our own careful, attentive, mindful observation of what's happening in any given moment. Dependent origination is not some re remote and, and uh, a distant thing we might one day understand. It's actually right here in every single moment, in everything that we see and hear and smell and taste and touch and think and feel, we can detect the, the pulse of the rising and the passing of things, the interconnectedness of conditions, the play of phenomena magically almost dancing together in the very moment of any experience. And this is why it's so crucial if we're to take these ideas to heart that they need to be uh, brought into being in our seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching and so on. So why is it then that the Buddha feels that um, no one will understand what he's saying. I think there are different ways in which we can uh, consider this uh, question. Perhaps the first way is, that, is to try to put what he's saying back into the uh, framework of thought that was prevalent at his time. And in many ways, I don't think this has changed a great deal. Um, I mentioned yesterday how the Buddha's teaching somehow goes against normative religious discourse. And 
to give an example of normative religious discourse, I think we can just consider um, the worldview laid out in the Upanishads. The Upanishads were probably the most influential um, spiritual doctrine, religious teaching that, uh, that was uh, around at the Buddha's period. And they continue to be so. In, in modern India, in modern Hinduism, the Upanishads are still the key text. Now the Upanishads um, lay out a vision of human life, very much like the one I sketched yesterday, of a kind of a soul or a self, an Atman, that is caught up through in an identification with the body and feelings and mind, and then driven to create actions that propel it from one birth to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. In other words, the cycle of birth and death. But at the heart of each being, of each consciousness, of each soul, is something which is actually un, uh, untouched by this phenomenal world, which in the Upanishads is called the Atman, uh, the self with a big S. Something that is pure, that is, it's often called Sat-Chit-Anand, a true consciousness, or truth, consciousness, and bliss. Something that in its very essential nature is not contaminated by its immersion in physicality, impermanence, rebirth, and so on. But because of its deluded identification with the body and the mind and so on, it's trapped, it's stuck, it's um, imprisoned in this condition. Now, for the Upanishads, the ultimate nature of reality, the absolute truth that lies beyond the phenomenal world, is called Brahman, which we could probably translate as God. And this is um, the transcendent, mystical, divine nature of reality that the Atman has lost touch with. And this is curious because the very nature of the Atman is in fact identical with the nature of God or Brahman. So a spiritual path in um, the Upanishads is very much a process of achieving a re reunion of the soul with God. So the core religious or spiritual ideas are on the one hand the discovery and the affirmation of this divine spark within and on the other hand a recognition that the true home or ground of this divine soul is this transcendental, transcendental numinous reality of Brahman. So by bringing the two together through purification practices, through meditation, through devotion, then you can finally achieve liberation or freedom from this cycle of repeated birth and death. Now, what's curious about 
the Buddha's teaching, uh, particularly in these early texts, is that he has no time at all for either Atman or Brahman. That he denies that there is, in fact, anything corresponding to this idea of a eternal, uh, blissful soul. For him, that is just a fiction. It's an illusion. And at the same time, um, he never even mentions uh, the possibility of some sort of transcendent self. Once he's seen through the illusion of one, the other really has no place at all. There's nothing in early Buddhism that we could translate as God. There is no sense of a transcendent divine reality whatsoever. And this, I think, is why, or one of the reasons, why he says, nobody will understand me. Because what he's presenting as a way of of spiritual fulfillment and liberation has nothing whatsoever to do with what would have broadly been accepted at his time as the necessary objects on which to focus our concern, namely the soul or God. In fact, he's saying something really rather uh, weird. He's saying that liberation, insight, awakening, fulfillment is found by paying attention, very close attention, to the phenomenal world itself to the rising and passing of your breath, the sensations in your body, the feelings that come and go, the thoughts that come and go, the sounds around you, the smells, the tastes, the touches, all of the things that in the Upanishads were seen as that which entraps you. In, in, in that more theistic model, the soul is delusively involved with all these things. And it needs to somehow abstract itself, detach itself from them, in order to recover its divine identity with God. And the Buddha's saying, no, it's not like that at all. The, the freedom from, and again, he would use the same metaphor, the freedom from birth and death is found by actually looking closely and attentively at the very flux of living processes themselves. There's nothing divine about them, there's nothing permanent about them, but that is where your salvation lies, by looking right at what it is that you thought was the problem. And we find this counterintuitive approach, um, for example, in the Four Noble Truths, which we'll look at uh, tomorrow. The Buddha is saying the path to happiness lies in looking deeply into suffering. It sounds odd. It, it, one, one would think it would be the other way round. But there's so many of these um, uh, teachings he gives that actually are very much a counterintuitive. And here too, perhaps, we find another parallel with the sciences. 
much of our scientific understanding of the world is also counterintuitive. The example I gave yesterday of the Big Bang, for example. Or simply take the physical nature, the, 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 the nature of physical matter. It seems solid, but if you probe into it, you find that it's 90% space. It's counterintuitive. Of course, the most counterintuitive thing is the fact that the sun rises in the east and we see it travel the sky and set in the west, and yet that's not actually happening at all. In fact, we are going round it. But intuitively, in terms of common sense, that's not what it looks like at all. And I feel that perhaps this is one of the, um, one of the points that perhaps uh, brings the Buddha's teaching into harmony with the sciences. It's not that it's talking about the nature of matter or anything like that, but rather that the approach is counterintuitive. It's not what we expect. It seems to go against common sense. It certainly goes against the common sense view of religion. Now, a normative religious discourse, I think, in all or most traditions, with the possible exception of Taoism, which is sort of on its own, really, but in all of the theistic religions, uh, we find a similar sort of model, um, whether it's, uh, well, let's just take traditional Christianity, also is premised very much on a realistic sense of God, the creator, who is, as it were, utterly apart from the creation and the soul or what we truly are um, has somehow become lost in its identification with the, um, with the veil of sorrow called life. And salvation consists of turning one's mind towards God and at death achieving the experience of the kingdom. Central to religion of all kinds is the idea that there's a part of ourselves which is not tied to the phenomenal world. There's a bit of ourselves that is somehow detached. That when we die, when the physical body dies and the brain breaks down, factor X, whatever you call it, the soul, the self, the spirit, this will somehow not be um, subject to that breakdown. That there's a bit of us that will be exempt. This is the great dream of humankind. That there's a part of us which is not subject to contingency, to impermanence, etc. And that exempt spirit, soul, self, whatever it is, will then if it's directed properly through its devotions and so forth and so on, will find reunion with this transcendent, absolute, eternal kingdom of God or whatever it might be. And I think the, that way of thinking um, is so deeply embedded that even today um, it's, it's often very um, problematic to include Buddhism within 
the broad paradigm of religion. And I've had experiences, uh, particularly when we lived here in England, of being on panels of interfaith discussion and so on. And there would be a, a, a there would be a Protestant minister, and there would be a Catholic priest, and there would be a rabbi, and there would be an imam, and there would be me, <laughs> or in other most cases, fortunately, somebody else would have that <laughs> privilege. And there's a usually these discussions start out um, on a very upbeat kind of note. There's a there is a very genuine um, recognition that. You know, we agree on a great deal of things, on the importance of, 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 of compassion and selflessness and, um, and so forth and so on, and ethics and morality. There's no problem there. But once the conversation gets underway, almost inevitably, at a certain point, the G word will raise its head. <laughs> and then whoever is representing Buddhism finds him or herself in a bit of a fix. And the fix is basically, well, do I just go along with this or do I raise a, an objection? And the easiest way, of course, is just to sort of fudge the whole matter and just go along, along, along with it. But on one occasion, I remember, I refused to do that. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> And this has the rather unfortunate event of bringing the conversation to an abrupt halt. <laughs> but I feel that that is probably the only honest way to deal with that particular issue. Um, I was at another conference once organized by an Islamic institute in Cambridge, which was to bring together people of faith who would form a, a common front against the rising tide of godless secularism. <laughs> and, exa <laughs> and, um, and exactly the same problem occurred, um, was that as the Buddhist, the token Buddhist at this gathering, um, we couldn't come up with a form of words that would actually include a Buddhist perspective. This was a big problem, at least for the organizers. But again, it made it quite clear to me that although in many regards I do feel an affinity with people who are committed to religious and, and faith-based uh, uh, initiatives and so on, at a certain point I feel um, that I'm not part of that way of looking at things. But what we find... Um, in Buddhism, and this is something we'll come back to later, is that despite um, what seems to me the very radical starting point, as is very explicitly stated in this text, as Buddhism becomes normalized as another religion, which happened very quickly, I think, after the Buddha's death, and certainly is the form that it has assumed in all Buddhist cultures, it has at the same time tended to shift back into normative religious discourse. 
I mean, a good example of this is the um, whole business around what it, if there is no self, what is it that gets reincarnated? This is such an, an old potato in Buddhism that people are almost tired of the question. I'm tired of being asked it, and so I will answer it before anybody else asks me. <laughs> the Buddha, there were certain questions that the Buddha was, um, was simply not willing to address. Um, for example, such as, does the universe have, have a beginning? Does it have an end? Is it finite? Is it infinite? Does the Tathagata, the Buddha, exist after death or not? Are the body and the mind the same or different? Are the body and mind same, the same or different? Such a question, he said, is not, to pursue such a question, is not conducive to the path he teaches. In other words, he refused to go there. He remained silent on that issue. And yet, every Buddhist school, pretty much, that came along subsequently did go there and came up almost invariably with what we would call a substance dualism. That body is one thing and mind is very much another, or at least some essential bit of mind. Mental consciousness or, you know, they get into very, um, very fine calibrations of some kind of psychic entity that survives physical death. Now the problem lies also with the Buddha's own um, teaching. Although he refused to say anything about the, whether body and mind were the same or different, he did nonetheless continue to speak in the language of classical Indian metaphysics, which supposed the continuity of life after death. So sometimes a disciple would come to him and say, uh, you know, such and such a person has died, what is going to happen to them? And the Buddha would say, oh, well, in 23 lifetimes he will become an ant, and then he will become this and become that, and then and he will become an arhant. And so that frame of um, speaking was very much preserved by the Buddha. Uh, he didn't challenge that, he didn't question it. It was quite adequate to his, uh, his teaching, but after his death, it left his followers in a quandary. Now here's this man who's been teaching us that we continue from life to life, and yet he said nothing about what it is that gets reborn. And as Buddhism became um, less a tradition among you know, wandering monks and nuns, in search of liberation, but rather a, an established form of organized religion, very often allied to a political power, then it became the job of the Buddhist monks to offer a coherent and a consistent explanation of how the world is. That was the function of religion all until the modern times, really. And so Buddhist monks were forced, in a way, to somehow sort this dilemma out. And their re resolution was to adopt a body-mind dualism. 
which I think is very much against the spirit of what the Buddha taught, but is nonetheless understandable given a lot of the other things he said. And so as soon as you do that, as soon as you talk of a mind that is somehow more, that is that has a greater primacy, a greater importance, a greater value than the body, you begin to split the world in two. And once you've made that split, then I think you're back very much into a normative religious kind of discourse. In other words, you are evoking something that is supernatural. In other words, the mind, or the essence of mind, or the true mind, or Rigpa, or something. But I'll stop there and continue this uh, tomorrow. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.